I'd like to invite you right now to put your hand in the area of the heart. We're going to be speaking about heart practices today. We begin with the sense of what we're talking about, what part of our being is being addressed. So, we all know this up here, the brain, right? You know, we, we're pretty easily in touch with that. We're not so easily in touch with the heart, but it's actually seen to be a center of intelligence. In the Buddhist tradition, the heart is, has a knowing function. It's not just the physical heart. It's a place of great feeling and intelligence. It's underrated. So we, we want to awaken that sense in ourselves of the heart as a uh, aspect of what we could call mind. The mind in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes you talk to Tibetan teachers, they'll say, my mind. They don't see a separation between the brain and the heart, the mind and the heart. They're one thing. They're one thing. So to get a sense of this beautiful, delicate, and yet incredibly wise uh, functioning of our being through the heart. So just to have a physical... So feeling your hand on your heart, what do you feel as you touch the heart? What does it put you in touch with? We sort of know it, but we just don't attend to it very much. So that's an invitation. Mind, heart, and then the belly. Now put your hand like underneath your belly button in the lower abdomen is another center of intelligence that's more connected to what we call gut knowing the kind of knowing that's in our gut about somebody or something or you know we just have a feeling in our gut that's where that originates in what is called the hara that's another center of intelligence a different kind of intelligence but these three centers are we don't focus on them particularly we don't say now we're going to work on this center or that center so much But they do awaken as we practice. Why? Because we're bringing our awareness into the body. We begin to become more sensitive to the feelings in all parts of the body, including our hara, our gut, our heart, and this poor overworked brain. We're told by the scientists we have to sleep to recover from the overactivity of of our brain. So Suzuki Roshi was asked, he was a Zen master in San Francisco back in the 70s, 80s. He was asked by a student one time, why do we practice? You know, if you practice, you do ask that to yourself sometimes. You think... What in the world am I doing? You know, why am I sitting here breathing when I could be, yes, checking out my Facebook page or 
you know, saving the world or something. But it, so it's a real question. Why do we practice? So his answer this time was, so we can be happy in our old age. So we can be happy in our old age. Why not? Do we want to be miserable in our old age? Or do we want to be happy in our old age? So this tradition and this practice gives us real opportunities for that to be the case. That we can be happy in our old age. What does that mean? Is Is it just like liking everything and feeling whoopee-doo about everything? No. What does it mean to be happy? So one way I like to think about happiness is as being in harmony with the way things are, not being in contention with everything all the time. You know, it's a workout in the world these days. It's hard right now. Well, let's just recognize that it's it's hard for many people right now to feel, you know, any sense of harmony with the way things are. But that is the greatest happiness. The Buddha said the highest happiness is peace. It's not getting everything you want. That's the our our definition in our, you know, very consumer oriented materialistic culture is that's what makes us that's what makes you happy is getting what you want and you know there's some you know you could point to some truth in that but is it going to is it going to help you as you're dying having everything you want no it seems that we're being asked to find happiness in a more a nuanced or more comprehensive way than just getting what getting what i want but this is an exploration that we will engage in if we practice what is it and as the buddha said come see for yourself if what i say is true so check it out is is happiness peace is that's what the buddha came up with or the peace that passeth understanding. It's that kind of peace. It's not just... It's the peace that passeth understanding. You had something. Just a question. I guess for me, and maybe for many of us, just with the political climate as it is, I find it so hard to feel peaceful and to be at peace with what is, because what is seems so non-peaceful. Yes, that's right. So can you expand upon that? Well, let's let's continue, and then we'll hold that as a question for the whole day, right? Because it's a big question, and I don't want to get. I don't. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, so this understanding of peace—is it true in your experience? That's where the only place it matters is what is your understanding of what makes me happy. So part of practice is is a process of discovering that for ourselves. What is it that brings the deepest sense of fulfillment, joy, peace? What is it? 
and to so that can be a motivating question in our practice it's not a cookie cutter approach come see for yourself and find out what is true in your own experience now we start that exploration with mindfulness and we did a short sitting there's a lot of talk about mindfulness now in the media, in the culture as having a lot of benefits and I like to say the best anti-aging elixir that you could possibly ever find better than any vitamin or magic potion (laughs) or, or surgical procedure or you know exercise regime or anything the most potent anti-aging elixir is mindfulness it's good for everything you don't have to doing mindfulness practice there's no side effects there's no negative side effects like you have with drugs you know the long list of negative side effects you don't hear that with mindfulness (laughs) It's mostly good news. Now, if somebody is practicing a ro- in a wrong way or something and they need more guidance, that might be something. But mindfulness, as it's, as it's taught generally and as it's experienced by most people, is good for you. Good for your body, good for your brain. Your brain is part of your body. Good for your emotional health. It's good for everything bringing this gentle, non-judgmental awareness into our experience, interrupting our negative habits, helping us to build better habits. That's kind of the essence of practice. We're, we're learning to interrupt the old negative habits and actually learn to cultivate new habits. It's like weeding your garden. You know, you got to get out there and pull the weeds. You can't just wish them away or try to ignore them. I just won't look at the weeds. No, you have to get out there and weed. It's the same with our practice. We do a lot of weeding. Somebody said, I don't know if it was the Buddha, but somebody said, who is my enemy? Who is my friend? My mind is my enemy. My mind is my friend. This is the transformative power of practice to cultivate a mind that is more uh, friendly than hostile, that is more open than bigoted and closed, that is more peaceful than in contention with everything. These are the real possibilities that we see in our practice that... It's by working with our minds that the transformation happens. It's not about rearranging the world to our satisfaction. (laughs) We would like to, right? We would like to dismiss certain people and, you know, have things the way we want. But that's not the way of things. So, 
the Buddha said, if your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes, in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. What does it mean to have a mind that is firm like a rock? It means knowing what's important, staying in touch with the values that you affirm as being the foundation of your life. Then you have something solid and real and grounded to live from. So to value peace and to value loving kindness and compassion, those are the rock that will help you through the world when everything is shaking. Everything around you is shaking. Crises will happen. Things you don't like will occur. But you have a mind that it rests in its own beauty and truth and value. And you can then enter the world with that as your rock. That's what practice gives us. Not that practice is not challenging. It doesn't become firm like a rock overnight. (laughs) You know, we get challenged in sitting by ourselves. It's not a piece of cake all the time. It looks so easy. Oh, just sit back. (laughs) No, you had, you, those of you who've practiced, no, it, it will challenge you. So, That's why we do this. That's why we decided Spirit Rock was a good idea. So we could all work on this together. We could all learn better habits and bring those habits with us into our lives. The Buddha said, No other thing do I know which which brings so much suffering as an uncultivated and undeveloped mind. We can see that. When somebody hasn't done their work, they can wreak havoc in this world. He also said, No other thing do I know which brings so much happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. The mind which inclines more towards peace than enmity, more toward calm than agitation. Calmness. What a wonderful thing to bring into any situation. More toward clear seeing than blind reactivity. All these good qualities can be cultivated. So... Today we're looking at the particular qualities of heart that the Buddha taught that are directly counter to some of our worst habits. So um, we've spoken about the challenges of aging and some of the opportunities now we'll look at of having a practice to help us. One of the one of the uh, 
I, I, well, let me put it this way. I very much enjoy working with people over 50. Why? Because I don't have to convince you that life is challenging. <laughs> you know, young people, they, they don't maybe know that yet. They've had an easy time where they think they can, you know, control it all, manage it all, and, you know, <sighs> piece of cake. You know, I think some of the tech people are getting challenged. You know, some of their attitudes are in question these days because they just don't have the life experience that you guys have, that we all have. We've been knocked around as the children's story of Velveteen Rabbit. Uh, Here's an excerpt from that about what's real. You know what? something about what's real. While the cloth rabbit and the stuffed horse were lying on the bedroom floor, the cloth rabbit asked, What is real? Does it mean having a stick-out handle and things inside of you that go around? No, said the horse. Real isn't how you are made. Real is a thing that happens to you when... Someone loves you for a long time. Really, really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the horse. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? No, said the horse. You become real over a long time. So it doesn't often happen to those who break easily, have sharp edges, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. (laughs) Your eyes have dropped out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. (laughs) But these things don't matter when you are real. You recognize some truth in that? You know some stuff, and you know what's important. Maybe your appearance isn't number one on the list anymore. Being is being real is the wisdom that comes with age. And the knowledge of not only the ups and downs of life, but the knowledge of how to repair things that have broken how to mend some of the wounds or heal some of the wounds that we have felt in our life. We discover in our practice one totally simple thing that we don't even realize is so useful until we do it for a while. But when we start practice, we are told to come to the breath. How long does that last? You know, we maybe we can stay with the breath twice or three times if we're really good. <laughs> and then the mind comes in and we're off somewhere. And we're told, okay, notice when the mind does that. And without judgment, you don't have to berate yourself. Oh, you're failing. You're doing it wrong. You're not being with the breath. No, without judgment, notice the mind's habit to think 
And then just bring the attention back to the breathing. How many times do we come back? What have you experienced, those especially who've been on retreat? How many times do you bring yourself back? Endless amounts of time. There's no end to that instruction. There's never a time in your practice where you don't find yourself out, come come back. So we say beginning again. We can return to the breath and begin again. And we learn to begin again over and over and over and over and over. And then we begin to see, oh, this is a life lesson. I can begin again. I don't need to hold myself hostage to the fact that I, my mind got you know, activated. It's not the worst thing in the world to have a, you know, it's just, okay, that's not what I'm doing. I'm going to come back and be with a breath. So how many times in our own lives have we blown it or made a big mistake or made a mess or it didn't turn out the way we had hoped? Are we going to hold ourselves hostage to that for the rest of our lives? This is a real question. If we do that, then we're signing up for suffering. You know, we're just signing up for being a victim of our own... You know, minds do that. They go to have a... Life does, doesn't consider everything that we want and deliver it right on schedule. <laughs> does it? So we are... One of the moves that we can begin to practice with is this beautiful move of never mind, the mind wandered, let's come back and begin again. Beginning again has an attitude with it of acceptance, of non-drama, of just, oh, here I am, let's begin again. And in that beginning again, there's endless opportunity, possibility, We can start afresh. This thing called beginner's mind is is talked about in the in the Buddhist tradition. The mind that is open to whatever. It has an innocence and a freshness in it that the expert's mind, the one who knows everything already, and you know. So beginning again. We can also repair what has been damaged in our lives. We can learn from our mistakes. Anybody make mistakes? So a little story. The student says to the teacher, what is the secret of life? The teacher says, good judgment student thinks and says, oh, well, how do I get good judgment? The teacher says, experience. And the student says, and how do I get experience? The teacher says, bad judgment. (laughs) And that's how it is, isn't it? We learn, if we're lucky, we learn from our mistakes. In the uh, in the Japanese tea ceremony, 
There are beautiful bowls used in a... How many of you have been in a Japanese tea ceremony? Anybody? It's a, it's a lovely thing to experience. I happen to have just bumped into it several times. But anyway, the bowls they use for the tea are beautifully constructed and they... Uh, the the serving of tea is very ceremonial. It's kind of a mindfulness practice of you know receiving the tea and drinking it. Once in a while, you'll see a bowl that has that has a thin gold uh, line in it, and it the story behind those kinds of bowls is that they were broken at some point. They fell and they cracked, and they were broken. Instead of tossing them out, they were repaired with a line of gold. The idea being that you can repair that which is broken. You can, you can still care for something even when it's broken. You can, the gold represents a kind of a healing quality that we can bring to that which is broken. So we use this analogy of the, it's called in the Japanese language, kintsuji, kintsuji, or golden repair. Uh, Michael Mead writes about this. um, The idea behind this ancient ceramic art includes the sense that when something valuable cracks or breaks, it should be repaired carefully and lovingly in a way that adds to its value. Thus, the cracks and fault lines in a valuable bowl would be filled with a lacquer made of resin containing powdered gold. Such a golden repair does not try to cover up the cracks or deny the facts of the matter. Rather, the cracks and splits and broken places become filled with gold. Beauty appears exactly where the worst faults previously existed, and the golden scars add to the living story and to the value of the container. We live mostly in a throwaway culture. You know, when something's broken, toss it. But this is a different relationship to something that speaks of care and repair. And we can apply that to our own lives in the sense of healing. And, you know, this afternoon we'll talk about forgiveness and bringing that quality of love and acceptance and care to our relationships and repairing where there are cracks. We all have cracks in our lives. We look around, we can do a survey of the cracks in our lives. Some of them are familial or relational or uh, political, societal cracks, ecological cracks. Wherever there are cracks, these are opportunities for bringing a sense of, uh, you know, like, oh, well, let's, let's try to heal this. Let's try to bring some other uh, heart quality, whether it's forgiveness, 
acceptance, tolerance, patience, love, compassion. Here is a poem by John O'Donohue. I quote a lot. It's, it's from a poem called The Morning Offering. May I have the courage today to live the life that I would love, to postpone my dream no longer, but do at last what I came here for and waste my heart on fear no more. Fear is often one of the biggest cracks that we all have to deal with. It stops us from so much. So learning how to work with our fear, learning how to summon courage and let courage support living the life that we would love. It takes courage. It's not obvious how to do the things that you know you know are important, the priorities. <clears throat> Actually, here's another poem by Elizabeth Bishop that I like because it speaks of repair and her own understanding of things. And that's often where the repair is needed, is in our own attitudes, our own uh, not understanding of how something works. So she wrote a poem called One Art. And she's talking about loss, loss in her life. The art of losing isn't hard to master, So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster some realms I own, two rivers, a continent. I miss them. But it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, I shan't have lied. It's evident. The art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like like a disaster. When we lose something, it so easily feels like a disaster. Right? That's our conclusion. Oh my God, this is a disaster. What will happen? You know, we just go there. And then with time, we discover it wasn't actually a disaster. It might have been challenging. It might have been hard. But it wasn't the end. 
we didn't end up in some permanent disaster. Life continues and heals and repairs even what seems like a disaster. So, the attitude of beginning again, the attitude of repairing that which has been broken, these are part of the healing work that we can do at any age. But by the time we are over 50, we probably have a, you know, some sense of what where we can apply these teachings. Then we come to uh, the very uh, to the, the actual practices that are taught in the tradition to they're not just attitudes but they're actually on the mat practices of how to heal our own suffering and how to heal the suffering of others. So let's look together at the some of the pages that were handed out and we can look at the page with the title Brahma Viharas. These are Sanskrit terms for what are the four um, qualities of heart and qualities of love that we can directly cultivate as we practice. They're not just uh, words. One of my first very stunning experiences in the Buddhist tradition was of meeting a Lama. This was in the 70s. It was really a long time ago. But until that time, I had thought of compassion as kind of a churchy word. I use that kind of a nice churchy, church lady word. You know, like I went to the Presbyterian church and they talked about being good and nice and you know, and I, th- I sort of lumped compassion in that category, and I, I, it turned me off actually. You know, to talk about like that, I just. But then I met this Lama in the seventies who was the epitome of compassion. I mean, something about his being just radiated this love and compassion and I was <laughs> oh wow I guess <laughs> there's something to this you know there was something in his demeanor that really opened my heart and made me very curious to know about more about the teachings and about how to practice in a way that would cultivate that enormous beauty of heart that he so just radiated. That's all I can say. It made me interested. And I still feel this gratitude towards him for having opened me in that way, or opened my heart in that way. Because sometimes we just, 
we don't know how you know how things what what's going to open us and how it's going to be but when we find any being or experience that opens us in that way it's it's a great blessing so i feel a lot of gratitude towards him so we are here on the ground at Spirit Rock with the Brahma Viharas, four holy dwellings for the mind and heart. They're ways of cultivating these four different flavors, you could say, of love. The first flavor is that of loving kindness, of developing a friendly, warm-hearted approach to life. That's what we could say metta is. Metta is not exclusive. It's not meant only for the people you already like and love or the cute people or the cute babies or the little puppies. It's actually meant for everyone. Loving kindness, you you can dislike somebody but still offer them loving kindness. It's paradoxical, I know, but it's that I'm going to love you no matter what. There's nothing you can do to stop me from loving you. You're stuck with it. (laughs) Kind of like that. So there's a whole practice of loving kindness. Then the practice of compassion is building on that quality of metta that says, how do we love someone who is suffering? Compassion is love in the face of suffering. There is suffering. We see it in ourselves. We see it in somebody else. And what comes forth is this desire to help. Desire to meet that, help that person, do whatever we can. So it's not like having a perfect uh, response. It's just that desire to help. I want to help you. How can I? So when we cultivate compassion, um, I forgot to mention that, I want to go back to metta, I forgot to mention something. So we cultivate metta partly by remembering somebody in our life that loved us or loves us unconditionally. Now, Sometimes that's challenging to think, well, who's loved me unconditionally? You know, that's a big order. But sometimes, so to make it easier, we might think of a pet. Yeah. Your dog loves you unconditionally. Pretty much always happy to see you, right? Or cats are a little more inscrutable, but maybe they're also like that. But certainly a a dog is like that. (laughs) with compassion the best way to get in touch with compassion is to think of someone who is suffering someone you love who is suffering and notice the response you want to help you want to you know be with that person you want to show them you care that's That is compassion, the seed of compassion. 
love in the face of happiness and uh, celebration, you could say, is called mudita or appreciative joy. It means joy in the happiness of others. It's the feeling that you have when you go to a wedding. That's everybody having mudita for the bride and groom. It's just a celebratory, wow, you guys just hope you're happy and well. And, you know, everybody's like in that mood. That's mudita, appreciative joy. Um, And wanting that to continue for whoever it is. So you think of some someone that is doing well, but you wish they would do even better. And then finally, love in the face of the uncontrollable, unacceptable parts of life. Love that doesn't like what's happening, but is not going to disappear because of that. So the caring, you can think of the caring of people in the face of tyranny or violence or abuse that says we can't stop loving. That's equanimity that can handle it not being the way we like, but it won't stop you from loving. That's equanimity. So now I'd like to uh, go to a, another sheet, the sheet with the phrases on them. And I'd like you to peruse these phrases, each, each category of love. These are suggested contemplations for you to take into your practice. So say you want to work on compassion. So here's a, a little list of different phrases that you don't you wouldn't work with all of them, but you might choose one or two or three of these phrases and begin to memorize them and take them into your own practice. Take them in as a contemplation. So that means repeating them silently to yourself and seeing how they fit. Do they, do they, does it Does it feel congruent with your heart to say, may you find ease of being? And any of these phrases can be applied to yourself, may I, or they can be used as for someone else, may you, or they can be used, may we, You know, with couples, it's often nice to contemplate the relationship. May we be free from suffering. Or may I, may you, may we, or may they. So you're you're using pronouns that reflect the object that you're gearing your attention towards. Usually it's best to start with yourself. So I'd like to invite you now to think of which of these qualities of love you feel drawn to cultivating right now. 
because we're going to go into a walking and I'm going to ask you to take some of these phrases into your walking practice. So right now for the next hour, what would you like to focus on? Metta, loving kindness, compassion, mudita or equanimity. And once you've decided which of those four, look at the phrases and pick one or two that you'd like to work with. When I say work with, I mean repeat to yourself. Not so much analyze or thinking about, but just repeating the phrase. The phrases, the power, let me put it this way, the power of the phrases is in your saying them and repeating them. You begin to hear what's being said to you. And you begin to be more receptive to the message coming in. So let yourself repeat and open and think of it as receiving more than doing. Imagine a phrase, you could even imagine a phrase coming from a little Buddha walking next to you or something. The Buddha is whispering in your ear one of these. May you be free from suffering. What would that be like? Have a Buddha whispering in your ear. Sure, why not? Any questions? Yes. Um, In regards to um, compassion practicing that you said to pick someone that's suffering right now and to um, pay attention to your response my response and then what just pay attention to say a phrase say a phrase whichever phrase rings true for you so she's bringing up a good point. If you are, want to work with compassion, but you do, so you might enter that more easily by thinking of someone you know who's suffering. Or you can choose yourself. You know you're suffering, but sometimes it's harder to start with ourselves. So we might want to start with somebody else. So you start by evoking the image of the person And see what it's like to wish them well through one of these phrases. And keep repeating it. So you want to repeat it not really fast. Slowly enough so that it can be felt and heard. It's not a race to the finish. You don't get more points for doing more phrases. It's a, it's a loosening up of your heart. It's a sort of massaging of your heart. You want to get it, massage your heart to try on some different attitudes. Can I ask Sure. You? So just for example, um, my mom has health issues and I'm trying to help her. And I annoy her because I ask a lot of questions. But 
that's because I have a nursing background. She doesn't understand why. So I get very frustrated with her. Sometimes I yell. So maybe you what need kind of, yeah. Do I get something for me? <laughs> yes, I think you start with yourself. Uh huh. Right. Oh, okay. So yeah. In, that risk, in this situation, something for me, so I won't get. Exactly, that's another good. May I find ease of being when I'm with my mom. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a half an hour for walking with the phrase or phrases that you have chosen for yourself. And that means going, probably you'll want to go outdoors, but you can do a, a, a anywhere you have the whole place to yourself so go wherever you wish and walk with some of these phrases and who will who will be ringing the bell yes you will okay so let's ring the bell at 1205 Wait a minute, is that right? Yeah, that's good. When you hear the bell, come on back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.